Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, April 19th. In today's news, the FTC eyes Mark Zuckerberg. New York City plays hardball against parents who won't vaccinate their kids. And the world's biggest democracy is voting. There are some logistical challenges. But first, the biggest story so far this year and what everyone is talking about, the Mueller report. Bob Mueller's report, a redacted version of which was transmitted to Congress yesterday, lays out in alarming detail abundant evidence against President Trump, finding 10 separate episodes of potential obstruction of justice, but ultimately concluding it was not the special counsel's role to determine whether the commander-in-chief broke the law. The 448-page document, which you should take the time to read, alternates between jarring scenes of presidential scheming and dense legal analysis. And it marks the onset of a new phase of the Trump administration in which congressional Democrats must decide what, if anything, to do with Mueller's evidence. The report suggests, though never explicitly states, that Congress, not the Justice Department, should assume the role of prosecutor when the person who may be prosecuted is the president. Trump once feared Mueller could destroy his presidency, but the special counsel may instead define it. By releasing a thick catalog of misconduct and mendacity that, if not criminal, is deeply unflattering, Mueller's report may mean long-term political problems for a president seeking re-election next year. Still, Trump's electoral base has not been swayed by such stories in the past, and he has already claimed victory on the investigation's bottom line. Mueller did not establish a conspiracy with Russia or conclude definitively that he obstructed justice. And Democratic leaders on Capitol Hill this morning have little appetite for impeachment talk. They say that this should be decided in November 2020. Since Mueller ended his investigation last month, a central question facing the Justice Department has been why Mueller didn't reach a conclusion about whether the president obstructed justice. The report says the issue was complicated by two key factors. The fact that under department practice, a sitting president can't be charged with a crime and that a president has a great deal of constitutional authority to give orders to other government employees or, for example, fire the FBI director. Trump submitted written answers to investigators. Mueller says he considered them, quote, inadequate, but he did not press for an interview with him because doing so would cause a, quote, substantial delay and provoke a legal fight that likely would have wound up before the Supreme Court. Trump's legal team declared Mueller's report a total victory for the president. They said it underscores what we have argued from the very beginning, that there was no collusion and that there was no obstruction. But if Mueller's report was a victory for the president, it was an ugly one. Investigators paint a portrait of someone who believes the Justice Department and the FBI should answer to him directly, even when it comes to criminal investigations that directly affect him and his associates. During a meeting in which the president complained about then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions' decision to recuse himself from the Russia investigation, Trump insisted that past attorneys general had been much more obedient to their presidents, referring to Bobby Kennedy and Eric Holder by name. Repeatedly, it appears Trump may have been saved from more serious legal jeopardy because his own loyalists, his own staffers, not the deep state, but his own appointees, refused to carry out orders that they thought were problematic or potentially illegal. For instance, in the early days of the administration, when the president was facing growing questions concerning then-National Security Advisor Michael Flynn's conversations about sanctions with the Russian ambassador to the U.S., the president ordered another aide, K.T. McFarland, to write an email saying that the president did not direct those conversations. She refused to do so, unsure if it was true and fearing that it would be improper. There's evidence that Trump did know about the conversations in advance, but Mueller is not conclusive on that point. The report also recounts a remarkable scene in May 2017, when Sessions, 
told Trump that Mueller had just been appointed special counsel. The president slumped back in his chair, according to notes from Jody Hunt, Sessions' then chief of staff. Oh my God, this is terrible, the president said, adding, quote, this is the end of my presidency. Then he used a profanity that's not fit for this podcast. The special counsel's report on possible coordination between the Trump campaign and the Russians to interfere in the 2016 election is extremely detailed, with only modest redactions, painting a starkly different picture for Trump than Attorney General Bill Barr has offered, and revealing new details about interactions between Trump associates and Russians that we didn't know about before. Mueller's team wrote that though their investigation did not establish that the Trump campaign coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities, that assertion was informed by the fact that coordination requires more than two parties, quote, taking actions that were informed by or responsive to the other's actions or interests. That's a very high legal standard. And Mueller made it crystal clear. Russia wanted to help the Trump campaign, and many on the Trump campaign were willing, even eager, to take the assistance. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Friday. Number one, the Federal Trade Commission is considering whether to specifically target Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg in its probe of the social media giant's mishandling of user data. Such a move could create new legal, political, and public relations headaches for one of Silicon Valley's best-known and most image-conscious corporate leaders. Often, the FTC does not target executives in cases where it finds a company's business practices have violated user privacy, but critics say that targeting Zuck could send a message to other tech giants that the agency is willing to hold top executives directly accountable for their firm's repeated data misdeeds. One idea that's been raised could require him and other executives to certify the company's privacy practices periodically to the board of directors. But Facebook has, predictably, fought fiercely to shield Zuckerberg as part of the negotiations. Number two, New York City health officials issued summonses to parents of three children Thursday for failing to have their children vaccinated against measles, a violation of the city's emergency order mandating immunizations to control a surging outbreak. The adults face civil penalties of $1,000 if an officer upholds the summons at a hearing. Health officials identified three kids who were exposed to the severe respiratory virus but were not yet vaccinated by April 12th in violation of the city's order. Failing to appear at the hearing or respond to the summons will result in a $2,000 fine. But city authorities say they will not face criminal prosecution. The children are in three separate households. Public health legal experts say it's been at least a century since health authorities issued fines in connections with such violations. Meanwhile, the Washington State Senate narrowly passed a measure that would make it harder for parents to opt out of vaccinating their children against measles in response to that state's worst outbreak in more than two decades. The bill would eliminate personal and philosophical exemptions for the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, the so-called MMR. It's a big victory for public health, and advocates hadn't expected to make it to the floor because of vociferous opposition from the anti-vaxxers. The measure passed 25 to 22 in the Democratic-controlled chamber. No Republican voted in favor. Two Democrats voted against it. It's expected to pass the State House soon and be signed into law by Jay Inslee, the Democratic governor who's running for president. This is the first time in four years that a state has removed personal exemptions in the face of a growing anti-vaccine movement. Number three, election workers in India traveled 300 miles over four days to set up a polling booth in a remote border state for one voter. The world's largest electoral exercise began this month in India 
and will take place in seven phases over a 38-day period. Results will be announced on May 23rd. Nearly 900 million people are eligible to vote, and India is committed to reaching them all, no matter where they live. Every five years, when India holds national elections, the world's biggest democracy grapples with challenging terrain, inclement weather, and poor infrastructure to ensure that no voter who wants to cast a ballot is left out. Rules mandate that no voter should need to travel more than 1.24 miles to vote. In the western state of Gujarat, a team will cross a lion-infested jungle to find a single voter. In the region of Ladakh, high in the Himalayan mountains, teams will be airlifted before trekking for a full day with oxygen cylinders so that they can reach voters. Far off the country's east coast, on the remote Andaman and Nicobar Islands, the teams of poll workers have braved crocodile swamps for nine votes. The lengths to which India goes to reach voters is a reflection of its commitment to universal franchise. Unlike in the United States, all adults in India have had the right to vote since the country's first election. Democracy is hard work, but it's beautiful, and it's worth it. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, April 19th. Thanks for listening. In observance of Easter, we will be off on Monday. I'm James Holman. Have a wonderful weekend. I will talk to you on Tuesday. <laughs>